Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. Mexico was one of the major Latin American countries to snub President Biden by not attending the Summit of the Americas organized in Los Angeles in early June. To discuss why AMLO, who represents a radical shift from other Mexican presidents of the last three decades, decided that it was better for him personally to distance himself from Mexico's largest trading partner and number one source of foreign direct investment and to side with his body from Cuba and other dictators from the region, that it is my pleasure to welcome Ricardo Pasoe, a renowned political analyst. Ricardo, welcome to the show. As someone with a very long trajectory within the Mexican left, in fact, you were one of the founders of the former PRT, a Mexican political party which derived its inspiration from Trotsky. And as a former ambassador to Cuba, what can you tell us about the current conditions in the island today? Well, it's a very critical situation in terms of the political, social, and economic conditions that the Cuban people are living in Cuba. Basically, the fact is, is that the island is governed by a sort of military civilian government. It's a composed government, in my opinion, of both uh, military factions and political factions of the Communist Party of Cuba. And what they have developed over time is a very consolidated and very solid form of hegemony in the society, both military and economic. And in my opinion, one of the contributing factors to the consolidation of this sort of, if I may use this not so common American term, but of a national bourgeoisie in Cuba, is the fact of the American embargo. Because what it's permitted over time, over 60 years, what it's permitted the astute Cuban leadership to develop is a very tight control over all the different aspects of the Cuban economy so that, in fact, the embargo is not destroying the system of control. It is destroying the standard of living of Cubans, but it's not destroying the hegemony of the political system in the island. So I've always maintained the idea that the embargo is actually, at this point at least, something that is used very skillfully by the Cuban leadership to maintain and reproduce its control over the society and over the economy. And it's become a very family-oriented economy. That is to say, the head of the hotel, the military hotels, for example, is represented in different countries, in European countries and in Asian and African countries by their sons, by their children. And so that it becomes a very ingrown system of control where the economic and family ties are very much invested in maintaining the situation as it stands today. The inclination for reform, for democratic change, etc., is very distant indeed from the minds of the leaders in Cuba. 
And yet, Ambassador, in July of last year, thousands of people took to the streets in hundreds of towns in Cuba, not only in Havana. They were chanting the lyrics of a Cuban rap singer in Miami called Patria y Vida, which actually won a Grammy. What triggered the July uprising? Was it a coup, as the government stated, or is it just the people, the younger people that have more access to the internet and to information, limited, but more access than 60 years ago, demanding freedom, food, and democracy? It's the latter. It wasn't an attempted coup. It was an attempt on the part of an important sector of society, especially the youth, demanding new conditions. There's something that's very relevant to me in what happened in the movement of last year, which is that traditionally, when there's a kind of movement of this kind in Cuba, what it generally tends to generate is a demand to be able to leave the island. If you remember in the case of Mariel, for example, at the beginning of what they call the special period, the periodo especial at the collapse of the Soviet Union, the movements of protest all derived in the demand to leave the island. And what is interesting in this case, and it, and it reflects something different in Cuban society, people were not demanding to leave the island. They were demanding change inside. This reflects a different, what I call a style of the animals. There's sort of a different frame of mind in the society of wanting to change things from within and not leave the island. And for me, that was a very relevant difference because what it shows is that the society actually feels more empowered. People feel that they can stay in demand. They don't have to go. Now, on the other hand, it is true that there's a huge migration illegal from Cuba to Nicaragua and through Nicaragua up through Mexico and toward the United States. That is true. There's a real outflow of, of Cuban refugees from the island. But at the same time, the movement that we saw in July of last year was, in fact, a movement demanding change inside the island which is why the government reacted so violently to it. And as has been reported, their people were even been condemned with 30-year sentences because of their participation in that movement. But the fear that it instilled in the government is enormous because what the government would prefer is the people to protest and leave, but not protest and stay and demand change. And that is really a significant change. And to me, it explains why the government has been so severe in handing down heavy-handed sentences to many Cubans, some of them even underage, just in an attempt to quash any kind of protest of people staying in the island and demanding democratic change. Ricardo, can you give us some color as to how the government is reacting to this demand? Yeah, well, this is sort of a cyclical process that occurs, as I say, cyclically in the Cuban economy and the Cuban society, which is that on the one hand, they attempt to open the economy and to let sort of self-employed people develop businesses in their houses, their paladares, the restaurants in their houses, and different forms of businesses, private businesses. But when the government sees them as being successful, they clamp down on them. And they do because they are terrorized by the idea of people becoming independent of the state. 
because the whole nature of the political system in Cuba is that everybody is dependent on the state. Everybody needs to be a state employee in essence. And if you're not a state employee, you can begin to do things and think things that are considered dangerous for the stability of the system. And so the recent changes in the penal code, for example, has cracked down on people who are even wanting to do different businesses and being able to punish them with prison sentences. This whole development of the usage of the judicial system to crack down on anybody who expresses differences or wants to do things in a different way what it really reflects is just a huge fear of the system. And I kind of agree with Yoani uh, Sanchez, a blogger who lives in Havana, when she says that what it reflects is that the system is desperately trying to stop a movement that is unstoppable and that is inevitable, which is democratic change in Cuba. I like to think that is the case but I don't know if it's going to happen soon or in the next millennium. So you know, one, the, the coin is in the air, I would say. Cuban activists have applauded the U.S. decision to exclude Cuba from the Summit of the Americas. Cuba was also excluded from the 1994 summit organized by President Clinton. Yet, do you think after we understand what you were saying, that people are demanding change in Cuba, that excluding them was the right decision or would have been better to have them at the table to try to push some changes in the island? That's an interesting question. At this point, I would say this. You know, Obama invited the Cubans uh, to the meeting in Panama, as you know, the last meeting. And he had a conversation with Raul Castro. And the reason was that Obama and Raul Castro had actually achieved quite a good agreement that was favorable in terms of opening up the economy in Cuba, not the political system immediately. It kind of favored Cuba in the sense of letting them continue sliding with their political system as it was temporarily, at least banking on the idea that with economic change, there will be political change. I mean, it's sort of a, a theory of political science. But what happened was that even after Obama visited Havana, the Congress of the Cuban Communist Party resolved to reject the agreement that Raul had with Obama. And it was a tremendous rebuff to Raul, actually. And the Cuban Communist Party rejected it. And they rejected it because Fidel suddenly appeared at that Congress and rejected the agreement that his brother had made with Obama. And the Congress applauded Fidel and supported Fidel. And Fidel gave a very famous speech in which he, in essence, said, we don't need help from anybody, something along that order. And then in November of that year, Fidel died. So the last thing that Fidel did in his life that was significant was to reject the agreement that his brother had made with Obama. Of course, Biden at that time was the vice president of the United States, and he saw this whole process. I'm just surmising at this point, but I think that probably he must have concluded that you basically can't make a deal with the Cubans, or not a deal that they will respect or that they will honor. My feeling is that he probably feels that he can only go 
a very short path with the Cubans without them dishonoring whatever whatever type of agreement you can reach. So I suspect that whole incident was weighed heavily in Biden's decision to not invite Cuba to this meeting. Ricardo, in this context, President Andrés López Obrador decided to snub President Biden by not attending the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles and side with his friend, President Díaz-Canel of Cuba, as well as other dictators of Venezuela and Nicaragua. Can you tell us a little bit about what is the relationship between AMLO and Díaz-Canel and how do they both see Russia and the United States? Well, they see Russia in a very ambiguous way. I think Andrés Manuel believes that, say, the Axis Russia-China is sort of the evolving and future source of power economically, politically, and perhaps militarily in the world, and that the United States is basically a declining power. He said so much in Belize on his recent trip through Central America, and he spoke very specifically of the United States as a declining economic power, sort of inevitably diminishing in influence and power in the world, both militarily and economically. So he has this idea. It's not a highly evolved idea because he doesn't elaborate much more. But in terms of, say, that Russia-China axis, it's very clear that he thinks that that is the future of power in the world. And in a sense, he feels kind of spiritually aligned, especially with Russia. And this is kind of an old nostalgia of the old communist or Marxist left in Latin America of feeling a certain identity with the Soviet Union, and then thinking that Putin is kind of the reincarnation of that ex-Soviet Union, even though Putin is more like a, like a capitalist fascist state. But no matter. The fact is that there is that kind of historic and nostalgic identity. And the same nostalgia plays in the relationship of Andres Manuel with Cuba and hence Díaz-Canel, the president of Cuba. It's kind of an adolescent nostalgia, if I may say so, kind of left over from the idea that Cuba is a great socialist utopian society that offers excellent health and education for its people, and that this is what the future of Latin America should be not repairing on the fact that the education and health systems in Cuba were all excellent, and it's true for a long time, but because it was financed by the Soviet Union, which spent $11 million a day supporting the, the Cuban economy. Fortunately for the Soviets, Cuba is a small country and a small economy, so $11 million a day was a very substantial source of help in addition to all of its financing of its military expeditions abroad, especially in Africa, in Angola, and so forth. So the health system in Cuba was financed by the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union disappeared, the health system equally disappeared, and so did the educational system. So that while there's still remnants of that left in Cuba, the fact of the matter is that it is not a model to be followed. Ricardo, is there anything that concerns you about the closeness of the relationship between President López Obrador and Díaz-Canel? There is one point that really concerns me very greatly about the, the relationship between Mexico 
and Cuba, which is that in his recent trip, he traveled to Cuba with the top generals of the Mexican military, the head of the Navy and the head of the armed forces. And this concerned me greatly because uh, Andres Manuel seems to be developing a kind of poor imitation of the Cuban model of leadership, which is sharing the leadership in equal terms between civilians and the military, which is something that had not happened in Mexico for many, many decades. And this is the Cuban model of governance, which is sharing power between civilians and the military, making all of them complicit in business uh, ventures, which is why the military in Cuba are so involved in business ventures, not only in Cuba, but around the world, as are other civilians in the Cuban hierarchy. So is that the reason why we have seen AMLO breaking with a long-held tradition in Mexico that separated the military from participating in areas that were considered for civilians, such as the construction of major infrastructure projects? Today, they're actually participating in most of his signature projects, like the Maya train, the construction of the airport, but they're also building bank branches. They're participating in the management of ports, among many other areas. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And he took the top generals with him to Cuba so that they would see the validity of what he's doing. In other words... I think that he is actually reproducing or attempting to reproduce the status quo in the society. And of course, in Cuba, the status quo depends on being a dictatorship, not a democracy. So the question that we have to pose for ourselves here in Mexico, is that the political option that López Obrador would like to pose for Mexico, a sort of a military, civilian dictatorship? with a facade of democracy as the new model of governments that he sees as the way he would like things to evolve in Mexico. The United States has recently, through many agencies, expressed the concern about Mexico becoming more governed by the narcos. The fact that the Mexican military, you know, will have so much temptations, it certainly puts them at risk of enormous corruption as well. How do you think the United States would react to Mexico having this military model? Well, the problem here in Mexico, and it's reproduced in Cuba as well, but on a much smaller scale, is that the whole model is based on corruption, on complicity and corruption. And of course, when you talk about corruption in Mexico, you're also talking about the narco, no? So in actual fact, my feeling in terms of the political science of what Andres Manuel López Obrador seems to be wanting to develop in Mexico is actually a triangular system of governance between military, civilians, and the narco. And hence, this kind of complicit behavior with the activities of the narco, and in fact, even it would seem promoting the narco to participate in politics, in electoral politics. And this is part of a whole model of governance, which I think he has in mind, and which I insist is based centrally on corruption and complicity. This must concern us to the utmost. The main thing I see that is sort of the roadblock in this whole process 
is that Lopez Obrador theoretically leaves power in two years. We should have clean elections and we should be able to begin to rebalance the political system and in a sense, return to the sort of Republican model of governance that is stated and sustained in our constitution. It appears like the U.S. government is turning a blind eye to a series of abuses that AMLO is infringing upon Mexico, but also upon the Mexico-U.S. relationship. It seems like there's a sort of pact in which as long as AMLO continues to help the U.S. in curbing the migration flows, that he will be allowed to breach other commitments, for example, USMCA or our environmental commitments, even U.S. investments in the country. Ricardo, why isn't the U.S. government using the leverage it has over Mexico to push back? I think Washington is being very cagey, let me put it that way, with Lopes Obrador. It seems to me that they are attempting to sort of box him in to a certain circumstance where he has wiggle room, but he can't move too far if I could describe it in that way, it seems to me. For example, let me, let me use this example of his refusal to attend the Summit of the Americas. What appeared to be a sort of brilliant, masterful call on Latin America to unite around, to rally around Lopez Obrador's call to not attend the summit, and which in the beginning seemed to have a tremendous uh, drag in Latin America, has ended up basically being diffused. And I think it was basically diffused by a strategy of sort of not confronting, but sort of going around him and doing diplomacy in Latin America, in the Caribbean, negotiating, pressuring, whatever you will, with different countries so that they will assist or so they will attend the conference. So that basically the people who have not gone to the meeting for this reason are the president of Bolivia, the president of Honduras, and López Obrador. There are other presidents who haven't gone for other reasons, and maybe one or two in the, in the Caribbean. But basically, for example, the softening of some kinds of conditions toward Cuba recently in terms of remittances and such things basically was part of a negotiation with the Caribbean islands so that they could justify attending the summit. In other words, Washington threw them a bone and they accepted and are now attending the summit. In similar cases in South America, Fernandez, the president of Argentina, who's very close to López Obrador, who in the very beginning said, yes, everybody should be invited, etc., etc., which sounded sort of like he was preparing to say the same thing. However, is in the summit, and he is in the summit because he needs to renegotiate his debt, and he needs the compliance of the United States to renegotiate his debt or his government will collapse. And the president of Chile, who said the same thing, however, you know, who ended out with a huge uh, approval ratings, has suddenly collapsed in his approval ratings and sort of is governing leftistly over society that now is against him in a majority case and therefore is demanding that everybody be invited. But he is there at the summit, as he himself said, to state his truths. 
Well, that's exactly what the summit is about, about going and stating your truths. And that's perfectly reasonable and par for the course. So the absence of Lopez Obrador has been completely diffused. Let me put it that way. And it was diffused by a diplomatic insurgency by Washington to gain this result. And in fact, even the morning that Lopez Obrador announced that he was not going to the summit in defiance of Biden's decision not to invite the three dictatorships in Latin America, he immediately, Lopez Obrador, announced his private visit to Washington. He has been invited by President Biden and Mrs. Biden to a private visit at the White House. So suddenly, everybody in Latin America, especially his allies, sort of lifted their quizzical look on Lopez Obrador saying, you know, here you called on all of us to boycott the summit and suddenly you have the privilege of a private visit to Washington to make your own deal. And so actually what is happening with Lopez Obrador is that he has ended up being questioned by both his allies and his contraries because people feel that in actual fact, he is simply fishing around for his own benefit and is really not guided by an ideological agenda, but by a very private, in fact, agenda of governance. Ambassador, what you are describing is really sort of that it took a lot of hand twisting for the United States to get, you know, many Latin American countries to participate in this meeting. What do you interpret that? Is it the fact that back in 1994, when the summits were started, the United States had a vision of a more prosperous future, and they even committed to creating this free trade area of the Americas. Fast forward to today, and it seems that the U.S. is no longer offering the same candy. Has this impacted how countries perceive the benefits of being associated with the United States in the region versus associating with other countries, as you mentioned, China? Without a doubt. What we've seen recently, even though it's more or less in disuse at this point, but the group called the BRIC, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, was actually an, a sort of an alternative thinking in those terms. And it has to do with the fact that in 1994, soon after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the idea was that the world had, in a sense, become a unipolar world, one pole, one program. It was declared the great victory of sort of liberal capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, over time, of course, there is a historic disclaimer to this, and the fact is that now the world is much more multipolar. The dispute between hegemonies between, say, United States and China, or the U.S. and the European Union with a block of China and Russia, and even the sort of dispute over with whom walks India. And so the whole idea that the world has become a multipolar world also has its impacts in Latin America. The fact is, for example, at this point, China invests more in South America than does the United States. Of course, then, who wields more power there? China does, obviously. I saw the note that the Chinese foreign ministry recently sent to the new 
Chilean president, amongst other things, not so suddenly reminding him that Chile's principal international associate is China, not anybody else, insinuating not the United States. The world has changed, and the United States is going to have to adapt to this reality. It's not the hegemon that it was before. Simply, that is not the case. What Mr. Biden proposed in the summit of establishing new supply routes in Central America, for example, to he posed it as a way of solving the migratory issue. But I would say even more profoundly, they are rethinking the whole issue of the supply routes. And they're beginning to think that maybe they'd better get them closer to home, which would mean reinvesting in Latin America essentially, and the Caribbean, and not so much in China, in Malaysia, in Singapore, in Indonesia, and wherever in the rest of the world. And this is a tendency, I think, that we're seeing and we're going to see accentuated in the next decade, the shortening of the supply routes. And if that's the case, if my hypothesis is correct, I think that the whole call of this summit is to begin that new sort of march toward shortening the supply routes. In other words, let's invest in our region. Let's develop industries in our region. Let's get our supplies from our region, both natural and technological, and let's work in those terms and not so much this massive outreach to other areas of the world. And I think that the whole idea of shortening the supply routes might really change the whole political approach of Washington to Latin America, which up to now basically has been remarkably of disinterest. However, the reality on the ground and the theory are not aligned in this case. And this is really because the López Obrador administration has created enormous uncertainty for investors. He has even impacted billions of dollars in investments. Thus, despite the geopolitical need and the opportunities that you describe, we haven't really seen a move to nearshore into Mexico. It appears to me that many in the U.S. are just waiting for the upcoming Mexican elections, which are in two years, with the hope that this might bring a president that is more friendly to investors and more reliable. What is your take on that? Yeah, I think that's what the, the thinking is in Washington, that we have to hold out, have to comply sort of with this whining adolescent that we have in Mexico. And that at the end of the game, he will in two years have to leave and we will rebuild the ties of confidence and the rule of law and that we will be able to reinvest in the new kinds of industries that we need in Mexico. Not only the maquiladoras, but also even more sophisticated industry and do this relocation of different sectors of the economy toward the South, even Central America. And I think the United States has to work on a policy toward that, which I don't think it has done. I think that it's just sort of assumed things about Latin America and it's kind of a brutally awakening to the fact that it's not all true and that Latin America has a lot of complaints about the U.S. Amongst other things, in the case of Mexico, the fact that the demand for drugs in the United States has just created a huge business in Mexico, which the cartels are thrilled to supply. And at the same time, the Mexican cartels have become probably one of the biggest 
business uh, associates of the gun industry in the United States. So we've created this sort of perverse cycle, drugs, money, guns, they come and go to and fro. And the fact of the matter is that they're really sickening, as it were, the relationship between Mexico and the United States. So it's something that we have to deal with, and we have to deal with it together. No doubt, the U.S. needs a new plan for the region. But it is also very important that we, as Latin Americans, or at least as Mexicans, that we need to understand that unless we do our part to strengthen the rule of law and to create the conditions to attract investments, that our biggest cost will be a huge cost of opportunity as many of the supply chains will find a home elsewhere. Unfortunately, we have come to the end of this episode. Ricardo, I would like to thank you for this very interesting conversation. My name is Mariana Campero. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 